You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome everyone to our annual employment law update. During today's episode, I'll be highlighting some of the new legislative changes that will be going into effect in California January 1st, 2024. Stay with us to learn about new laws impacting wage and hour practices, Cal OSHA compliance, and updates concerning reproductive loss leave and off-duty cannabis use. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. A quick note before we get started. The legislative updates that we're going to be discussing today impact private as opposed to public employers and employees. So let's get started. Out of the 1,046 bills that were sent to Governor Newsom for signature, about 890 were signed and 156 vetoed. 80 employment-related bills were signed with 26 of those vetoed. All bills, except the ones designated as either emergency measures or as otherwise noted by me during the podcast, take effect January 1st, 2024. Let's start with minimum wage increases. Effective January 1st, 2024, the minimum wage in California is going to increase to $16 an hour. This is going to mark the end of California's phased-in increases for large and small employers. The increase also impacts pay requirements for exempt workers who have to be paid a salary of at least two times the current minimum wage. 2024 minimum salary threshold is going to be $66,560 annually. State law requires that California employers be paid the minimum wage, and in addition, some cities and counties have a local minimum wage that in some cases may be higher than the state rate. So you need to make sure that you keep this rule in mind, that when faced with a conflicting employment law standard, employers have to always follow the standard that is most beneficial to the employee. So to see about a list of local minimum wage ordinances, For some guidance, you can take a look at UC Berkeley Labor Center's website, and we'll put that link up on our web page. All right, let's hit our first legislative update. Our first legislative update has to do with the use of cannabis. So this legislation, AB 2188, was actually signed into legislation in 2023 and and it's going to take effect January 1st, 2024. So AB 2188 makes it unlawful for an employer to discriminate in hiring, termination, or any terms and conditions of employment or otherwise penalize an employee or an individual if that discrimination is based on that person's use of cannabis off the job and away from the workplace. So in keeping with that, AB 2188 prohibits employment-related decisions based on a drug screen test 
that finds persons to have non-psychoactive cannabis metabolites in their blood, hair, urine, or other bodily fluids. So in other words, you cannot weed out applicants or employees, see what I did there, based on drug tests that report a finding of THC in the body. So AB 2188 made sure that employers can still test for drugs and alcohol in the workplace, um, but it's on a uh, on the workplace use. So if they're if you suspect someone is using or impaired by cannabis on the job, you can do, uh, of course, a drug test uh, based on the circumstances. So that bill does not apply in a couple of different top job types. So employees in the building and construction trade, um, applicants or employees who are hired for positions that require um, federal background checks or security clearance with some specific regulation issued by the Department of Defense or Defense or some equivalent regulatory body. Um, there is a new cannabis, uh, another cannabis legislation that went into, uh, it's going to go into effect January 1st, SB 700. That was passed this legislative session. So SB 700, um, it's going to impact the existing law that we just talked about, AB 2188, by making it unlawful for an employer to take any adverse employment action. Um, take any action that would negatively impact an employee's terms and conditions of employment um, against that employee for off-duty cannabis use. So specifically, employers, you're going to be prohibited from discriminating against a person in hiring, termination, or any other terms and conditions of employment, or otherwise penalize a person because of their use of cannabis off the job and away from the workplace. So this prohibition is going to extend to any request of information from an applicant or employee relating to that individual's prior use of cannabis. Um, however, information about somebody's prior cannabis use that's obtained from that uh, person's criminal history is going to be permitted in accordance with California's Fair Employment Housing Act um, or any other state and federal law when it comes to criminal history and uh, doing background checks and all that. Um, so again, this new statute is going to continue exemptions for employees uh, in building and construction and the other uh, exceptions we just talked about. Um, and again, the statute also makes clear that an on-duty possession or use of cannabis is still going to be prohibited by an employer's anti-drug and alcohol policy. All right, that's our cannabis legislation. The next one has to do with the Fair Chance Act or our ban the box regulations here in California. So this particular update, uh, legislative uh, enactment became effective October 1st of 2023. So this had to do with um, amendments to the California Fair Chance Act regulations as opposed to the actual statute. So we have statutes that tell us what the law is. We have the California Code of Regulations that tell us how to interpret the statutes. So it was the regulations that were updated and the changes impact employers with five or more employees and involve uh, inquiries into an applicant's criminal history prior to a job offer or in other subsequent employment decisions. So either promotion, training, discipline, layoff, or termination. Um, the key changes, we're not gonna get too far in the weeds in this. Um, if you have questions, you should um, take a, a quick call to your legal counsel to get some really in-depth information on the changes here. We're just going to be pretty broad. But the key changes involve the process um, 
required following an initial assessment where an employer believes that an applicant's conviction history might disqualify them. So employers have to inform an applicant in writing of this preliminary decision. Nothing about that's changed. But the written notice has to encompass the disqualifying conviction, copy of the relied upon conviction history report, applicant's right to respond before the decision becomes final, and then guidance on the type of evidence that can uh, challenge the conviction history or demonstrate rehabilitation. So that is part of the new um, notice requirement, that part about challenging that, what evidence can be used. Um, and then, of course, the notice has to also in indicate the response deadline. Further amendments sort of addressed the concept of this individualized assessment that an employer has to undertake if you're going to attempt to preliminarily disqualify an, an applicant or an employee based on a conviction uh, pulled from a conviction history. So the process is now explicitly defined in the regulations as, quote, a reasoned evidence-based determination, unquote. So the regulations delineate the factors that should be considered when you're assessing an applicant's uh, or current employee's conviction history directly and adversely relates to the job's specific duties. Um, additionally, these regulations provide clarity on evidence related to rehabilitation or mit mitigating circumstances, as I mentioned earlier. Applicants um, can provide that type of evidence either voluntarily or through through a third party on request. So if they have evidence, they want to show you that a conviction uh, on their in their criminal history has been expunged. Uh, they might want to send you a letter from their attorney so you can get the information from that way and you have to accept it. Um, the amendments prohibit certain employer actions like rejecting additional evidence from applicants, mandating that they can only provide certain types of evidence, um, disqualifying candidates for not providing certain evidence, um, and soliciting information about domestic violence, survivor status, or any medical conditions. So sort of all of those protected classifications. Um, the modifications also outline the reassessment process for employers deciding whether to revoke a conditional offer based on a conviction history. So those factors include the applicant's behavior during incarceration, post-conviction employment history, community engagement, rehabilitative efforts, and any other mitigating factors. So these changes extend the Fair Chance Act's jurisdiction to encompass labor contractors, union hiring halls, and client employers. Uh, these type of entities have to adhere to the same regulations, especially for workers entering a pool or an availability list. Um, we are gonna take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, more on our legislative update. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Don't let biased algorithms or degree screens or exclusive professional networks or stereotypes. Don't let anything keep you from discovering the half of the workforce who are stars. Workers skilled through alternative routes rather than a bachelor's degree. It's time to tear the paper ceiling and see the stars beyond it. Find out how you can make stars part of your talent strategy at tearthepaperceiling.org. Brought to you by Opportunity at Work and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us, like us, give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere.
Welcome back, everyone. We are highlighting some of the new legislative changes that are going to be taking effect January 1st, 2024. Our next update is SB 497, which has to do with protected employee conduct. So existing law prohibits an, uh, anyone, a person, anyone in the employer's uh, realm of uh, employment from discharging an employee or in any manner discriminating, retaliating, taking any adverse action because that individual engaged in protected conduct. So applicants and employees are also protected against retaliatory conduct for having engaged in protected activities as outlined in the labor code. So SB 497, it amends various sections of the labor code and it creates this rebuttable presumption in favor of an employee's claim of retaliation if an employer takes any adverse action against that individual within 90 days of the employees having engaged in protected activity. So protected activities under the various labor code sections include, but it's not limited to, making complaints or claims related to rights under the jurisdiction of the labor commissioner. That is super broad. Disclosing, discussing, inquiring about an employee's wages, aiding and encouraging other employees to exercise their rights, filing a complaint um, or a claim relating to the exercise of rights under the labor code and providing information or testifying in a proceeding. So the new statute also expands current penalties for whistleblowers from a single $10,000 penalty for a violation to a $10,000 penalty per employee penalty, um, which will be awarded to the aggrieved employee. Um, however, the civil penalty amount assessed by the Labor Commissioner, it is discretionary, or discretionary based on evidence provided. But this is a pretty important one. So employers want to make sure that if you're taking any adverse action against an employee, that you really are looking at the facts. What's going on with that employee? What's been happening? Um, have they made any inquiries about employee wages or being able to talk about their employee wages? Have they made any complaints or claims relating to any other rights under the jurisdiction of the labor commissioner, which could, which could include complaints about discrimination, harassment, retaliation based on protected classifications? So you just want to keep this one in mind. All right, sick days, um, annual sick day uh, accrual and front-loading under the Healthy Workplace, Healthy Families Act has increased um, from 24 hours or three days to 40 hours, five days, and increases cap amounts to 80 hours. With certain exceptions, the Healthy Families Act entitles an employee to paid sick days if the employee works in California for the same employer, 30 days or more within a 12-month period um, from commencement of employment. Employers are, of course, prohibited from retaliating against employees who use paid sick days or impose specific uh, conditions on the use of paid sick days. That would be requiring the use of paid sick days for specific healthcare uh, and situations. So SB 616 increases the number of paid sick days available to employees and extends the use of paid sick days to employees covered by valid collective bargaining agreements. So a few key things to keep in mind. Raising the employer's authorized limitation on the use of carryover is part of the new statute. Carryover sick leave to 40 hours or five days in each year of employment. It redefines the full amount of leave to mean 40 hours or five days, allows eligible employees subject to an employer's existing paid leave or time off policy to earn at least 40 hours or five days of paid time off within six months of employment. So that's if you have an existing PTO or paid sick leave policy, you have to make sure it now complies 
with these increased hours. Um, it also increases the total allowable accrual to 80 hours or 10 days. Um, it also makes clear that it intends to preempt a lot of the local ordinances that typically contradict the Fair, uh, uh, Healthy Families Act when it comes to provision on things for like compensation for accrued unused paid sick days upon spe specific employment events, the lending of days, written requirements, things like that. So employers should review your current paid sick leave policies to make sure that you're compliant and note that the state's increase in paid sick leave may still fall below amounts required by certain municipalities. If you want to make sure to check it out, it says it's supposed to preempt, but you want to make sure. And employers should also consult council or check local municipality websites to determine if your policy remains compliant. Um, our next big legislative change is leave for reproductive loss, SB 848. It's going to make it unlawful for an employer to refuse to grant reproductive loss leave following a miscarriage, failed surrogacy, stillbirth, unsuccessful assisted reproduction, which is to means just means artificial insemination or an embryo transfer or failed adoption. Additionally, qualified employees are those who've been employed for at least 30 days prior to the commencement of leave. The leave is capped at 20 days within a 12 month period for anyone who suffers more than one loss within the same period. The loss can be taken on a continuous basis or an intermittent leave, um, but has to be completed within three months of the reproductive loss event. Um, however, if right before or right after that reproductive loss event, an employee uh, is on or chooses to take leave pursuant to any protected state or federal leave, then the reproductive loss leave has to be completed within three months of the end of the other qualifying leave, that state or federal leave. Um, unpay, a leave can be unpaid unless, of course, your policy states otherwise, except that employees can also use vacation, personal leave, accrued and available sick leave, or any compensatory time off that's otherwise available. So again, typical statute uh, protections for employees who exercise their rights against harassment, discrimination, or retaliation. Um, this one also mandates employer confidentiality. So keep that in mind. And to assure compliance, again, you want to make sure that you consider updating either your existing bereavement leave policy or creating a new reproductive loss policy. Let's keep going. Um, we have talked many times on this show about the California Privacy Rights Act, the CPRA, and its amendment, the CCPA. So the CPRA became effective January 1st, 2023. However, regulatory enforcement was stayed until March 29th of 2024. So you want to keep in mind, you want to make sure that you are getting ready to comply with the regulations um, as of March 29th, 2024. So some of those, um, the Enforcing those rights is, of course, the responsibility of the California Privacy Protection Agency, which has the authority to implement um, the CPRA and issue significant fines for non-compliance. So you want to make sure, one, uh, to find out whether or not you are subject to the CPRA and its amendments. And two, you want to make sure that you are reviewing the regulations and that you are ready to go. March 29th, 2024. All right, our next 
legislative update has to do with non-compete, non-solicitation agreements in California. I'm going to speak very briefly on this because if you're using a non-compete or non-solicitation agreement in California, you have been violating the law. So California makes it very clear prior to these two latest amendments that California law, public policy in California and the law does not allow an employer to put a non-compete or non-solicitation provision into any agreement with an employee. So SB 699 and AB 1076 make this very clear that whether a agreement with a non-solicitation is signed in California or outside of California, it's not going to be honored and it's not going to be enforceable. Under AB 1076, if you are an employer who has entered into any contract that restrains any individual from engaging in a lawful profession, trade, or business of any kind is going to be void. And AB 1076 requires that by February 14th of 2024, all California employers are required to send an individualized notification to all current and former employees employed after January 1st of 2022, regardless of where they reside, who were required to enter into a non-compete agreement or whose contracts for employment included an unlawful non-compete provision, you have to notify them that these agreements are void, right? You have a deadline, so make sure that you're reaching out, you're looking at your agreements to see if you have such agreements and that you are getting these notices out there. They have some specific information. So you want to immediately review uh, all your contracts in state or out of state, identify those contracts, begin putting together contact information and drafting your individualized notifications. Notifications have to include references to the specific agreement at issue. Identify the impacted provision, clearly state due to this change in California law, um, these non-compete uh, agreements or provisions are no longer enforceable, nor will the company attempt to enforce them. Seek counsel if you are unclear as to whether your company entered into such agreements as of January 1st, 2022. All right, we just, we're going to run a little long because we've just got a couple more we're going to cover. So in California, um, AB 102 has um, set aside refunding of the Industrial Wel Welfare Commission, the IWC. So the IWC was established nearly 100 years ago to regulate wages, hours, and working conditions in California. It was defunded in 2024 by Governor Davis. Um, but the interesting thing is these IWC numerous wage orders continue to be enforced by the state's Division of Labor Standards Enforcement Department. So this addi additional budget allocation revises this statutory body, this administrative body, invests them with legislative, executive, and judicial powers. And they're now charged with reviewing a broad range of industries spanning 17 work orders, wage orders, because new orders may not include any standards um, that are protective um, more less protective than existing law, we should really expect, uh, not expect a lessening of responsibilities, but more than likely increased responsibilities under any new or amended wage orders. So we'll keep you up to date on any changes to that. And in the last few minutes, we just want to point out one 
case that came down in 2023 that's very important. It's going to affect a lot of employers and their uh, handbook policies. So the case is called Stericycle, and it was a decision from the National Labor Relations Board that ruled in favor of rejecting its current balancing test, which the NLRB was using to determine whether an employer's work rules um, were so overly broad as to chill an employee's exercise of their rights under Section 7. Um, and they've changed it to a more favorable, restrictive, reasonable interpretation standard. So this standard sort of harkens back to a time when it seemed virtually all employer policies that were reviewed by the National Labor Relations Board were found in some way or another to violate Section 7 rights. So going forward and retroactively, the NLRB is going to begin analyzing employer policies um, from the perspective of an employee who is subject to the employer's rule and economically dependent on the employer and who also contemplates engaging in protected concerted activity. So the overall view of the NLRB being that employees who are economically dependent on their employers are really anxious to avoid discharge or discipline and reasonably inclined to construe ambiguous work rules to prohibit protected activities. And then as a result of that, they are gonna to seek to avoid any risk of violation by foregoing such activities. So the NLR, NL, NLRB, is going to view its prior standard really as failing to require employers to narrowly tailor workplace rules. So that's going to be their focus. So considering the new standards, employers, whether you're union or non-union, you should begin a comprehensive review of all of your current workplace policies through this new lens, this narrowly tailored um, perspective of the employee, keeping in mind that as far as the NLRB is concerned, the employer's intent in maintaining a rule is immaterial. And what matters from their perspective is whether an employee could reasonably interpret a rule to restrict or prohibit Section 7 concerted activity rules. So this will be the case even if the rule could also reasonably be interpreted not to restrict Section 7 rights, and even if the employer did not intend for its rule to restrict Section 7 rights. So for this one, look at your uh, handbooks, look at your policies, consult your legal counsel, and um, consider whether it's narrowly tailored enough not to interfere with National Labor Relations Act rights. Okay, that is it for our show today. I want to thank you all for joining me. I also want to thank my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives Team Extraordinaire. Our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Steve Bersaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.